0: Welcome to Growth Uncut, a podcast that interviews different people from around the world to share their views on personal growth. We feel passionately about connecting communities and raising awareness around social justice, humanity and relationships. I'm really excited to be joined with Professor Ben Crewe. Hello, Ben. How are you doing? Hi, Sarah. I'm fine. How are you? I'm really good. And really happy um, that you're here and really excited for you to be on Growth Uncut. Um, your work is truly inspiring and so I was really pleased when you said that you would be a guest on on the show. So thank you ever so much for joining us.
1: Oh, you're welcome. I'm kind of looking forward to it.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so just to um, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, can you, can you introduce yourself for them, please?
1: Sure. So, Well, professionally I'm a professor of penology and criminal justice at the Institute of Criminology, which is part of Cambridge University. I'm also Deputy Director of the Prisons Research Centre. And I've been at the Institute for almost twenty years, nineteen years, um, ever since I finished my PhD. So in football terms I'm a one club academic I guess (laughs) and then personally I'm married with two children a five-year-old boy eight-year-old girl Um, and I guess I'm just a middle-aged man with middle aged interests so I like socializing and food and drink and music and sport and reading and walking and all of all of those
0: sorts of things. And in terms of personal growth, what would you say personal growth means to you, Ben?
1: Well, I guess I think it's something to do with reaching potential. Um, Often I think it's linked to self-knowledge and also not being limited by the past. So becoming more than you were. And I was quite, I thought the way Shad Maruna put it in your podcast with him a few weeks ago was was very interesting that becoming more than you are or, or growing isn't always a good thing. You can grow old or fat, I think he said. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I guess that's the case, but normally we think of it as being something positive. And I suppose the other way I, I think of it, and, and this is relevant to some of the research that I've done, is that it's about not feeling static or stagnant. and And so the way that it's featured in some of my research uh, I guess re- relates to that that sense of moving forward rather than being trapped by the past so so one of the pieces of research that I've done recently is about prisoners serving very long uh, life sentences and what we found in that study that this this is research with um, Susie Holly and Serena Wright uh, what we found was that, prisoners who were in the early years of those sentences used very consistently used a language of being static or treading water hmm. and feeling like they were, they, they, they would often talk about um, existing rather than living. And that, that, was, that was partly just to do with being overwhelmed by the situation they were in, a sort of unexpected situation and the sense that they have no future at all and that was described to us as being existentially almost unbearable and and so I think there's something quite interesting there about what it feels like to not have a sense that you can grow Mm. interestingly the, the the people who we interviewed and this was female as well as male lifers who were further into their sentences were able to describe forms of growth so that, that's interesting because of course we don't normally think of prisons as places where people can grow and normally they they, they clearly inhibit growth in all sorts of very very important ways but, but what was also described to us was the importance of things like religious faith and education and forms of therapy in helping people move forwards so and I think that was moving forwards was partly being able to find ways of processing emotions. So, those were emotions relating to having these life changing sentences, and also often to do with um, dealing with the, the offense itself. So, trying to come to terms with what it was that you had actually done. But also, I think the things I mentioned faith, education therapy and so on i think they help people work out their place in the world and um gave them gave them a way of thinking about the future in a way that allowed them to move on from their past so i think that's i guess that's how personal growth has been relevant to some of the bits of research i've done the the other i guess it also appears in a piece of research that I conducted with Alison Liebling and Susie Hulley and Claire McLean, uh, this was about 10 years ago, where we used um, surveys called measuring the quality of prison life surveys to to assess the, the sort of moral climate of a group of public and private sector establishments. And what we found in that research was that it wasn't possible for that the prisoners didn't feel that they could develop personally unless they were in environments that were generally positive. That's all. I mean, these terms, positive and negative, are all kind of relative. But yeah. that that it was only in prisons that were reasonably safe and decent and where staff were reasonably professional um, that people actually felt that they could Change, and although that sounds rather obvious, it's also very, very important because it's telling us—I guess—it's telling us that that the idea that if you make prisons harsher, people will somehow change out of adversity or deterrence or something like that—is fanciful, and that instead you need prisons to be. Um, morally decent environments in as much as that's ever possible um in order for people to feel that they can grow and that's something that um that my colleague Alison, along with Catherine orty have, have, have now written up in, a, in an article that demonstrates it demonstrates that really clearly that um that, and that these things have an impact on people uh post-release. Wow.
0: Um, So when looking at your research with those that are are going through a life sentence, from my experiences of working with lifers, they talk a little bit about that kind of dark, dark place, which, you know, I guess really kind of resonates with what you were talking about in terms of that the beginning of that sentence. And then talk about how this kind of light at the end of the tunnel kind of takes takes hold. And then with that, they can kind of see the future. Yeah. uh, See it as a positive place. What? I guess for me, that's hope, you know, that, that yeah. there's there's something that kind of activates people and moves people forward. Did you see that in your research in terms of people talking about hope in at different stages of their sentence?
1: Yeah, we did. I mean, I, I guess. We heard it mainly in terms of hopelessness among people who were in the early years of the sentence. And that's partly because our study was so 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 we interviewed people who had been sentenced when they were 25 or under and who had tariffs of 15 years or more. So in other words, they would be serving at least 15 years. Mm -hmm. And and many of them had tariffs that were 25 years or 30 years. So what that meant was that often we were speaking to people whose sentences were longer than the number of years they had been alive. And Mm -hmm. so so I guess part of their hopelessness was just not being able to even can imagine in their heads that length of time that they would end up spending in prison. And the, I think the hopelessness also came from the realization that your life was just never going to be the same again. So the future that you imagine for yourself has gone, um, and also the relationships that connected you, that were meaningful to you outside prison or before you came into prison, were, would never be the same either. So, so in the early years of those sentences, people were dealing with all sorts of emotions that they couldn't quite um, articulate or even understand for themselves. So often that was anger about the conviction or the sentence, distress about, um, often distress about having been involved in some way in someone else's death. And then just the the general hopelessness of knowing that you're going to be in prison for a very, very long time. But, But certainly people who we interviewed who had got through, I guess several years of their sentence, often around seven, eight years of the sentence, talked about the process of gradually coming to terms with their circumstances and being better equipped to handle some of the things that had previously made them feel hopeless. So things like managing time, or working out ways of feeling that you had some sense of control. Uh, Because of course you don't have much control in a prison, but, and if you, and and the people who mainly have control over you are the people who hold the keys, so to speak. But what people described to us was, were forms of coping in which they adjusted their sense of what it is they could control. so so often people would say, well, I, I can't, I have no control over being here, but I can control my emotions and how I react to people. I can demonstrate to other people that I'm a decent person by the way I engage with them and the kinds of conversations I can have and so on. And then of course, for many for the majority of our um, of the people, um, who we interviewed, the main sources of hope were family. So, um, so I mean, that, that was obviously very difficult for people whose offences meant that their families had effectively disowned them. And it was very common for friends to fairly quickly fall away. But, um, but parents tended to be the people who stuck around, particularly for the men in our study, um, often they described having had quite difficult relationships with their parents before they came into prison, but that coming to prison had made them reassess those relationships and want to invest more in them. Um, so, so that meant that a lot of hope um, derived from family relationships. And as I said, other things like relig- religious faith um, and, uh, and just, I guess, as people found ways of coping which doesn't mean they weren't damaged of course they I think most recognized that they would that they were or would be very damaged by the experience but but they found ways of um dealing with some of the daily problems of imprisonment and generally started to orient themselves towards the future much more but I the the, the rather um unsurprising but depressing thing about all of that is that the people we interviewed who were coming towards the end of their sentence or often beyond their tariff point and sometimes still in quite secure conditions had often returned to this state of hopelessness and resignation that we mainly encountered among those who were at the early stage. And I think part of that was because um, because release sometimes felt both very near and yet very distant, but also because sometimes forms of family support had had themselves faded away or parents grandparents and so on had died during the course of the sentence so so hope and hopelessness were threaded through what we found um but uh, i guess were were took different forms at different points in people's sentences if that makes sense
0: yeah absolutely i think um I think it makes so much sense and I think it seems that, that both kind of hope and and hopelessness kind of serves quite a significant kind of function, um, within within the way in which we can cope, I guess, within prisons, but also how relational connections can can really help during a prison sentence and throughout that prison sentence and maybe even serve different functions at different times. Um, So so when you when you think about hope and when you think about your kind of senses of hope um, what what is it that you value Ben in terms of your life?
1: Well I think mainly relationships so um, obviously my kind of closest relationships with my wife and children and so on and my the family I grew up in and also friendships. So I still have really good friends from where I grew up in Colchester and also from university and all of the years since then. And um, and although this might sound slightly ridiculous, I work quite hard to try to maintain those friendships. They that I find them very uh, nourishing. I've always been very sociable. Um, and also my colleagues, I've been really struck during this, The recent period of lockdown by how much i've missed those professional relationships um people i work closely with in my university and other universities i've I've really missed those people a lot and then i mean lockdown has been quite good for helping me think about it's been terrible in most respects but it's been interesting to think about what matters once you don't have those things around and initially i was struck by how little I missed things I thought I might miss as individual things, pubs and restaurants and things like that, but actually collectively all of those things add up to something quite important. So I think having a bit of texture in my life feels really important. So a good balance of work and non-work, which is hard to achieve, um, all of that has struck me as being terribly important. And then I suppose there are some values that mean quite a lot to me. So humanity and fairness and justice. And and I think I'm particularly interested in the ways that those things play out in, or how they're expressed in everyday interactions and relationships. And that might explain why prisons have ended up being such compelling places for me, because I think you you see values in action, if you see what I mean, that the mm. interactions between people in prison, whether that's prisoners and other prisoners or staff and prisoners, there's an awful lot going on within them that I think can be analysed in terms of some of those um, uh, sort of some of the ideas that I've mentioned.
0: Who would you say your inspiration and, and why would why have they been your inspiration?
1: Well, that's quite difficult. I I mean, I guess my parents so um, grew up in a very happy household, Um, an older sister and a younger brother and parents who who had a strong set of values around fairness and decency and genuinely liberal values. And it was a very stable environment with lots of warmth and laughter and, and a lot of conversation which I'm not sure I realised at the time was so not exactly unusual, but, um, you know, we were a house in which we talked about things a lot. Um, and I guess, you know, my, my, my dad has a very strong sense of public duty. Um, my mum was a therapeutic counsellor and was, I guess, all of the things you might associate with that, so warm and compassionate and a very good friend to people so they they've, they're certainly inspirations and then as I was when I was a teenager I was I guess the person that was the biggest inspiration for me was probably Billy Bragg who I think I I, I loved the mixture of songs about politics and songs about love so he that that that, that was probably more influential than I have realized um my one of my grandmothers who was, um, who escaped from, who was a German Jew and left Germany when she was 17, um, never saw her family again. They were all killed in um, concentration camps and transit camps. And she had an incredible um, ability to grasp life and to live it at its fullest. And I found that, I've always found that very inspirational, but someone that could have become, that could have been extremely bitter and um, vengeful was actually the opposite, very liberal and tolerant. So, So she was a great inspiration. And then I suppose professionally, Alison Liebling who I work with very closely has been very influential. She and I, when I first started at the Institute, she and I spent an awful lot of time together in cars, driving to prisons and talked a lot about ourselves and research and all sorts of things that were very I guess very bonding we've, we've always had a very we've had a we share um, a sort of value set and also an orientation to research that has been very important professionally so I think that's a that's a decent list of, ins- of inspirations yeah.
0: isn't it yeah absolutely that's amazing and um and like you said it's really interesting that you talk about having all these different kind of kind of relational groups kind of within your life and yet you you know it sounds like you've had inspiration from all from that from all of them um along the way so is lovely yeah.
1: yeah and also um, some some of that inspiration has has come from seeing not just from individuals but also behaviours and practices within prisons and again i don't want to make prisons sound too great because obviously mm. in all sorts of obvious ways they aren't but seeing interactions in prisons can, that can look quite banal are often really thick with significance so so i think when officers or education staff or whoever use their authority well i've always found that quite Um, quite inspiring in a sense so in the first piece of prison research that I did which was in HMP Wellingborough there was a there was a philosophy teacher called Alan Smith and I I used to take almost time out when I when I was a bit um, frazzled by doing field work I used to go and sit in his philosophy classes Um, and it wasn't exactly a break because what I saw in that class was an incredible example of how um, someone can wear their authority very lightly, can almost try to give it away while also holding on to it. If that makes sense, and and he was someone that inspired prisoners to a really remarkable degree, even while talking about things that were certainly over my head. People like him, who who I've encountered over the years, I've encountered many people like that in all sorts of areas of prisons, who I think. Um, have a sort of sensitivity to power that I think is terribly important within those environments. I mean, you also find terrible forms of inhumanity and power being misused. Mm. But as you say, I think it's also important to emphasize that quite a lot of what goes on within prison uh, is a kind of deep expression of humanity. Uh, I mean, I suppose what I mean by that is, that there are daily forms of kindness between prisoners and care and compassion, even though those things, even though people in prison will themselves say it's really hard to be kind and compassionate in here, Mm. you'll see those things. Um, and equally when you see prison staff using their authority, um, legitimately kind of carefully and sensitively and with compassion I think that's that's very powerful so so you, you do see lots of terrible depressing things there's an awful lot of pain and distress within prisons but there's also the opposite and I think that um, it, it, it's important to communicate that because of the risk otherwise that people think of prisons as places that are Um, It's much easier to have a picture of prisons as places where there's absolutely no humanity at all Mm -hmm. and that isn't my experience and I guess I don't like what's implied about the individuals in prison once Mm -hmm. one starts thinking that these are places of pure brutality. As I say there is is brutality and violence and exploitation but it's not all that there is
0: i completely agree that there's just those those kind of acts of kindness that we kind of talked about kind of earlier those kind of acts or those gestures of kindness or those little um small small acts that kind of highlight people's values whether that's around you know justice or fairness or humanity i think it's just that that real delicate kind of execution of them that i just think is when people do it without any almost any effort it doesn't it just looks completely natural I think there's something really powerful about that that yeah, is yeah it's absolutely inspiring um so so I guess that's there your kind of inspirations what about your kind of challenges so what's been your kind of biggest challenge in life and um from it
1: well I, I thought about this a bit and I checked with my wife that she didn't mind me raising this but um we I think the biggest challenge for me personally was when we had a series of miscarriages trying to have a second child. And that was just a devastating and exhausting experience that made life feel exceptionally grey and dismal. Um, it, it it kind of took over life a bit. I mean, I think more so for my wife than for me, but it was a really awful period of life so I, I mean I, I, I've i had a pretty fortunate life in most respects so I don't have a long list of things to choose from in terms of things that have been emotionally really really difficult but that, that was something that really stood out and I guess I learned quite a lot of things from that but I mean one one thing that seems quite minor that I learned was that um, certainly we felt as though we never resented anyone getting in touch however awkwardly and so, so one thing I've tried to take away from that is that um, it, it's better to say something than nothing mm. when when you think people are going through a hard time and of course in those situations when people are just a little bit kind it's, it, it kind of knocks you over a bit, it, it makes a big difference and, and and I think the other thing it made me realise or made me realize all the more was that you never really know what people are going through um that people have interior lives or or private lives that might be extremely stressful even if they're not exhibiting that um all the time and and i think that that too is relevant to prisons where i've always been struck by how odd it is that prisons can often feel very stable and um and and to outsiders I think surprisingly calm but beneath what's visible and beneath what gets talked about publicly almost everyone in a prison is in the middle of a personal catastrophe of some kind and and so I think once the the kind of interviewing that I do where I um, often talk to people about their life histories as well as their experience of imprisonment you it sometimes feels like you're uncovering all this stuff that otherwise doesn't get expressed because prisons aren't places where it's easy to be candid with other people um so i guess it's just made me think of imprisonment as a place where that, that, that that produces and also suppresses or harbors you know a thousand little tragedies a day if that if that makes some sense that there's just a huge amount going on that people don't have ways of talking about um to to, to most of the people around them every day
0: Mm. I think it's it's absolutely it's really interesting um because I kind of think in the in our work in uh, you know when we do the kind of growth project and we support people our kind of idea is is this idea of unconditional positive regard ultimately so irrespective of what happens will always be there but there's also something about i guess trust isn't there in terms of how people can feel the freedom to be able to really talk about those 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 difficulties or those challenges that people are facing in a really honest way um, because a, a lot of the time that stuff can be written down and and possibly used against them. It can it can yeah. be um, it can be it can be maybe manipulated in different ways. And I I kind of think trust is such an important thing. And I know Alison Alison writes about trust, and I know that it's um it's so important within a prison environment. And yet I I question based on the design of prisons and the system that that has that has emerged in terms of those practices, to what extent can people can people genuinely trust others and and be openly honest about about what's going on for them? Um because I don't I don't see I don't see it as a viable, you know, I don't see it as a viable scenario based on state in which prisons are currently in do you see what I mean?
1: I do and, and I think some of the most some of the bleakest discussions were certainly with with the the people we interviewed who were serving very long sentences were the ones in which they said that there was no one that they could trust um, or people that had served many many years and said that throughout that that time they hadn't really been able to trust anyone mm. um, that that certainly wasn't universal so 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 people quite often said to us well you you can't trust anyone in prison but then they would go on to describe having one or two close and emotionally intimate friendships that they had built up over a period of time that did at least allow them to share their feelings with others Mm -hmm. but but as i say quite quite often people would describe a a that partly they would describe a shutting down of their own emotions as a way of coping with all of the strains of imprisonment or they would say all what they would convey was that you have all this emotion inside you and often a very complex personal history but that there isn't there aren't many outlets that, that allow you to express those things and so I think that's part of the reason why things I mentioned earlier like education and faith and and therapy by which I mean um, sort of therapeutic input rather than offending behavior programs but those things were often very important in helping people work out who they were or um, process forms of trauma or um, or move on from the past but doing that interpersonally was often described as very very challenging within the environment of the prison, where the people who are around you every day are people who you might not trust. You don't know who they were before they came in or who they're gonna be when they leave. Um, You have to be a bit careful about what information you um, give out to other people in case that's used against you or seen as a mark of vulnerability. And as you say, there's also an anxiety, particularly among people with indeterminate sentences that almost anything they say might come back to haunt them if it's recorded on file and considered to be in some way relevant to their risk level. Mm-hmm. So yes, it's a really difficult environment in which to be completely candid about things that, that it's really important to be able to express.
0: I remember one guy who was, um, he'd serve, he was serving a life sentence and he managed to kind of get to DCAT. So he, he managed to get to open conditions and, um, and, As he was approaching that transition into, you know, as he was approaching his release day, really struggling with with the anxiety of that, having having been behind the door for so long. And I just remember him talking about, you know, that normally, you know, previously he would he would contemplate, you know, he would self harm as a way in which he did cope earlier on in his sentence. But at that stage, thinking about thinking about that as a way in which he was going to cope in that environment, but knowing that. He he didn't feel he had anyone to turn to or anyone he could trust. And knowing that if he did self harm, then ultimately he would just be sent straight back to closed conditions because within that within that prison, it it wasn't something that they felt that they could you know that people on a um, you know people that self harmed weren't able to to basically reside there. So it's just this this real you know, this real conflict, isn't it? This kind of really difficult place of do I honestly talk about my anxieties of of leaving? Um, do I cope in ways that I've previously coped, but that means that I won't basically get to result released at the time in which I want to get released? Or, you know, do I just put up a mask and say everything's fine and and hope that no one kind of um, digs deep really in terms of where we're at? And I think yeah. if we're, if we're genuine, genuinely trying to promote growth and create an environment where people can meet their human potential, I think there needs to be something that, mm. that really addresses the importance of honesty and, and I guess the environment enables us to do that. But I think yeah. there's it's fundamentally a flaw of of, you know, one of one of the many maybe in terms of the system that we've currently got that people can't openly talk about the things that that they're really struggling with and those pains that they're experiencing. Um, yeah. and so always and that's- is, is ultimately drug use or we may see you know alcohol abuse or we may see violence as an expression of that but ultimately underneath that it's about those unmet needs isn't it it's about what's what's going on under all the surface yeah. that we don't know
1: about that that's certainly what our the, the the people who we interviewed who were in the early stage of very long sentences what came through very clearly was that they were so overwhelmed by emotions like anger and bewilderment and um, hopelessness and had so few ways of expressing that that that, it, that those emotions then took shape in fairly destructive ways. And, and one of the things that's quite complicated about that is that people who we interviewed who had got beyond that stage would often say, well, yes, you, you really need someone to be able to talk to, but you're also at a point in your life where you feel least able to actually take up any opportunities of, of assistance. Hmm. But, but it's certainly my view that that people people coming into the system serving long sentences and, and, and no doubt short sentences too would really benefit from um, opportunities to openly talk in in, in ways that don't um, generate anxiety about risk if you know what i mean so in other words you you need a way of talking that isn't too burdened by risk thinking and power so um and that that's that that there's 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 very little of that form of support for for people who at a stage in their sentence when they really really need it um because of because otherwise the risk is that they Turn towards forms of expression or ideologies that might be very um, destructive.
0: It's around feeling safe, isn't necessarily. You know, I think when when prisoners get asked, "Do you feel safe here?" A lot of them talk about that in terms of physical threat. You know, but I think there's also something there about that kind of deep level of safety feeling that they have a space where they can safely and bravely talk about these things. Yeah. That, um that, that they are, you know, that people are struggling with. Um yeah. uh, so yes, um so much, so much to um so much to think about, but also, you know, I think it just highlights to me just some of the kind of historic kind of issues that we've got and, and but also what it could be, you know, if we did create places where people could be safe, you know, how transformative that would be, if we looked at how through trauma people could, you know make sense of that and and build new identities and new opportunities you know based on what's happened to them to help them help them move forward but um yeah absolutely i guess that leads me to my last question so um if you could um improve one thing to grow our communities and make them safer and happier places um what would you do
1: well i guess i it, it really saddens me that civic society if that's the right term has been so diminished in recent years Uh, maybe that isn't the right um terminology but cuts to local authorities have been so savage in recent years um sort of you know billions of pounds and that means cuts to things like adult social care children social care social work mental health services, libraries, uh, transport systems, parks, all of these sorts of things. And I I guess this feels most relevant with regard to the kind of work that that I do and you do in terms of services for children and young people. And, And it's not just by that, I don't just mean that people need a place, a safe space to go, a place outside their own home, though all of those things matter. I also think the relationships that people are able to develop in those spaces. Um, th- these are relationships that can provide stability and hope and mentoring and so on but all of this is part of the sort of daily infrastructure of people's lives and I do worry a lot that that has been eroded um, over the last decade or so in ways that are not, not just really damaging but also quite hard to put back together again so, so but but I think that's where that's as good as an answer as I can. That that feels like the most obvious thing to me at the moment. Mm.
0: And and uh, you know, looking back on COVID nineteen and in some senses, how that disconnection that we've we've had has exacerbated some of those problems. Certainly in terms of reaching people and in order to kind of build those relationships. But I guess also seeing those other other relationships at play. You know, whether it's about mobilizing do believe that there is something about mobilizing that kind of civic responsibility in terms of saying you know you know looking i guess at the norwegian model but this idea that as a community we support the rehabilitation of people coming out of prison and we support the prevent you know working and developing yeah. children at schools you know we have a role to play within that and i think that civic empowerment almost could you know, could drive some of these changes instead of thinking that we have to find the answers in ministers of justice or in politicians at the top that maybe from the ground, we as communities can come together and think about how can we be more active? How can we be more tolerant, more caring? um, How can we instill hope in other people? I think... um, because what we're looking at is, is austerity, aren't we? In the, in the next, however long in light of, of what's happened, you know, we're looking at a, a place where at the moment, a lot of money is being spent, but ultimately down the line, we're going to be seeing a, a further squeeze, aren't we? And I, that's my fear is that erosion will just continue. Um, and, you know, what, what that, what, you know, what that looks like, how that plays out is, is the yeah. scary And
1: certainly, I mean, I, there have been things about this period of lockdown that have been genuinely uplifting in the sense that for example in the the two or three streets around where i live there's been a very there's been a great whatsapp group that has provided all sorts of forms of practical and i guess emotional support for people who need it and that just that it just felt as though that emerged and sort of developed its own energy very quickly but I'm not all that optimistic that, that that sense of community will endure all that, all that much when, when things begin to change, but perhaps that's too pessimistic. And, and I mean, the other thing you said that really struck me was, was about trust. And like you, I've spent a lot of time in prisons in Norway and just being with in Norwegian society and talking to Norwegian people. And it's very striking how much more trust there seems to be in, 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 in rather, not just in immediate relationships, but also more abstract relationships with the state. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not convinced that that the events of the last three or four months have, have will do much to increase trust in the state, or certainly in government. But um, it it would be it would be great to be able to reproduce in some way that sense that um, that that you could trust rather than fear um people around you and also the, the state itself uh, the, the problem is that I'm not I'm not particularly persuaded by the idea that you can just transport um cultures and policies from one country to another I mean you, you there, there are practices and um and processes that you can try to emulate but um you know we we can't just become it's not It's not very easy just to become a bit more like Norway, if you know Mm -hmm. what I mean.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that there's something around legitimacy, isn't there? And I guess that links in with with um, the work around moral performance and the idea of having legitimate, fair, procedurally just mechanisms where you have faith in, your, you know, the governor. We have faith in the people that kind of run the prison. We have faith in, you know, the state, if we think about it in terms of macro relationships. But um, again, it's just um it's just been a very challenging time and i think that has there's certainly been a crisis of of legitimacy you know for me anyway in terms of um how how covid has been managed but also how you know you know whether that's senior advisors or or whatever um have have behaved in a way that's not congruent to how i would imagine a legitimate authority would would um would behave so yeah um, yeah it's um it's relatively bleak, Ben. <laughs> yeah, sorry, <laughs> podcast man, yeah. with such podcast with such a sad thing. But I think, you know, I guess the you know, in terms of in terms of the hope, you know, if in terms of the the first steps, in terms of, you know, what you feel could help, what do you think would be what would you think would be it right now if, if there was something that could inch us forward, I guess, what would it what would it be?
1: Well, in terms of increasing the legitimacy of. Uh... Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. So whether that's um, whether that's about, you know, c- civic responsibility, whether that's about connecting um, within communities, um, where do you. Where do you see your what well, your hope? Um, if I guess if there if there is any at this stage, or are we just treading water? Uh, I guess. Um...
1: Well, d- I mean, despite the, all the pessimistic things I said before, I guess you know my my hope is that um, that that some of what has been present in these community groups that I've been part of. I mean, by which I simply mean a WhatsApp group. Mm. Um, I mean, you know. Th- it, it, it's not the case that I've got to know, know loads of my neighbours all that much better as a result of it. But it has been quite, it has felt like quite a powerful expression of people's willingness to um, to be kind to each other.
0: Mm. Yeah. And so, then, and, then, and that's so important, isn't it? Like you say, those we've talked about the the big impact that you can make from the smallest act, isn't it? And I kind of think that's you know that's that's the stuff isn't it about not only what could we do on a day-to-day basis that could be these small kind of gestures of connection or kindness but the impact of that is could be could be significant significant if it were kind of a collective a collective effort I guess yes Mm. thank you so much Ben and it's been lovely to have you on the show and I really appreciate the time that you've dedicated to this and just to give people a a new insight into I guess some of the work that you do and some of the research you do so I really really appreciate it and thank you everyone for listening and um I really hope that you um, got a lot from it as much as I got from it. And if you'd like to get some more information, please contact um, us on info at Penal Reform Solutions or check out our website on www.penalreformsolutions.com or we are on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, just search Penal Reform Solutions. Um, And if you want to contribute and support us through Patreon, um, we would love that. All proceeds go to creating this podcast as well as our school project, which kind of engages um, former prisoners in in the kind of the journey to to support people in their growth, to support children in their growth as a preventative strategy um, to um, divert them away from crime. So, yeah, if you want to get involved in that, uh, please contact us or even visit uh, www.patreon.com slash growth movement. Um, but yeah, thank you ever so much and catch you next time. Take care.